The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. I'm going to say some things to you today that may startle you, but I'm going to be very frank and very honest. I'm now pushing what they would call the golden years. And I have to tell you that I have spent my entire life searching after what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I mean that literally. I've recognized many times that I could have done other things. I had a number of professional things that I would have enjoyed very much doing and participating in. But the Lord called me to be a pastor. And with being a pastor comes the responsibility to understand what salvation is and how it comes. And as a child, I was very troubled by what I was told about Jesus. It just didn't sit right in my heart. I know now it was the Holy Spirit calling me after him. In seminary, as I studied classical orthodoxy, as I read the church fathers, as I searched academically after the historical Christ, my heart was not satisfied. And some of my seminary buddies said, Ray, why are you always on this quest? Why don't you just be satisfied that Jesus loves you? He died for you on Calvary and you're saved. I said, I can't be satisfied with that answer. It's an inadequate answer. I knew it didn't explain what happened at the cross, and I knew the cross was the most important part to know what Jesus did at the cross. I had to know that. So I searched the scriptures. I was not very successful, frankly. My mind was dumbed down by what I had been taught. It was it was numb from what I had been taught, both as a child and as a seminarian, and then as a pastor. I continued to search. There were words in Scripture that caused me heartburn. Now, Through these years, I have been very aware of the love of God. I have walked in that wonderful love of Jesus Christ. But I have not taken that love for granted. And so, most things that most people readily enjoy, 
have been no joy to me. My joy has been found in reading the scriptures and searching after the treasures. Who is Jesus and what did he do for us and how do we enter into that? My heart is still not at rest about all of those issues. I still am a a person who is searching, searching for the depths of understanding that I might walk in a manner worthy of the call on my life to Jesus Christ. And I've had to let go of many of my beliefs. John Wesley always taught that if your life does not look like the life of Jesus, it's because you have not been taught correctly about Jesus. And so you're comfortable walking in your sin because of a misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus. So the scriptures say in Matthew, the seventh chapter, this is literally Jesus. He says, enter through the narrow gate, that is, the gate where you suffer affliction. And I want to be very very straight, and some of you will not understand this, but I pray God will give you the inner call of the Holy Spirit to pursue these things. There is no righteousness in your life without suffering. If you have rejected suffering and found a way to medicate yourself with the smorgasbord of the devil prepared for every American and every person in Western civilization, there's a great Western civ smorgasbord laid out before us in this age of reason. He says, enter through the gate where you will suffer affliction. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small or but groaning is the gate and suffering and suffering the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Most who call themselves Christians today are in fact not saved. They are believing a theology that they have been taught that tells them, tells you, that you are saved. But if you have not seriously pursued the question of your salvation, if you have not suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ, if you have not groaned over the demands of the gospel, then you do not understand the narrow gate. That means that you are walking on the Broadway. The Broadway is filled with beautiful mega churches and little churches. The Broadway is a way of utter deception. I have taken through my life these words very seriously. 
and because of them I have constantly searched after Jesus. Verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And you know, immediately, I'm sure your mind goes to that passage in the book of Galatians. Let me turn quickly to it, where we find described the fruit of the Spirit. I can quickly turn to it. Love, joy, peace, Let me read it for you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such, there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Do you understand? The fruit of the Spirit comes in chapter 5 of Galatians. But if we look at chapter 2 in Galatians, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ, pardon me, my voice is giving me great difficulty today. Just pray for me. Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So Paul is saying, look, there is a crucifixion that is necessary in your life. You cannot be crucified and not be very conscious of it. It's not an unconscious crucifixion, and it causes great suffering. It causes great groaning. If you have not gone through that suffering and that groaning of crucifixion, then you will not have the fruit of the Spirit. You may have in you self-improvement. I talk to people who say, Pastor, I'm working on my patience. Well, if you have the fruit of the Spirit, pardon me, if you have the fruit of the Spirit, you don't have to work on patience. 
The fruit of the Spirit is singular. It comes with crucifixion. You don't have to work on love. It comes with crucifixion. You don't have to work on kindness or goodness or fruitfulness or faithfulness. Those things come with crucifixion. That's what Paul is saying to us. Now, Jesus is saying, a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So if you don't have this fruit of the Spirit in your life, you're a bad tree. This is what I've had to face. Verse 21 of Matthew 6, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking here about pagans. He's talking about very religious people. I sat this morning beside a table six or seven older women who were studying a Max Lucado book. Of course, Max Lucado believes in the sinning Christian. And these women were sitting there. I'm sure they're very loving women. But they sat there gossiping. They sat there talking about people who weren't there. Oh, did you hear? It's awful what they did. And so on. It was not the fruit of love. It was darkness. And yet they're wonderful Christian women who say they love Jesus. And I'm sure all of their life they have, for the most part, thought they were followers of Christ. But he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now that causes great heartburn to the American church, because the American church has been taught that you don't have to do the will of the Father to be saved. All you have to do is say a little sinner's prayer, Lord, forgive me for my sin, and I'm in solid. I accept you, Lord, as my Savior, and I'm in solid. A large, independent megachurch in the Washington metro area in a board session voted that in their evangelism they would no longer introduce the concept of the lordship of Jesus. Instead, they would only introduce the concept of Jesus as Savior. They said someday they might learn about the lordship of Jesus, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus is their Savior and that they accept Jesus as their Savior so they can be righteous by the covering of the blood of Jesus but they're still going to walk as sinners. See, this is the great deception of our age. Jesus is talking about, literally, putting into practice the words of Jesus. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He says, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I'm going to tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Please don't hear what I'm saying today as condemnation. But I have to deal honestly with the word of God. I have to read what it says and then ask the Lord for understanding. Verse 26, he says, But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. These are people who have head knowledge, who believe they're saved because of what they know, and because they've said that they love Jesus and they accept him as their Savior, they believe they're saved, but they're still walking in their sin. They are not they are not putting into practice the words of Jesus. And part of the struggle that I've had is to understand what did Jesus do for us when he died on Calvary. The view of the doctrine of the atonement is absolutely vital if you're going to understand what the demands of Jesus Christ are in your life. The provision God has made in the atonement is the basis of what God requires of you in this life, and consequently, the nature of the account you will give to him in the final judgment. See, it doesn't matter what you think about whether you're saved or not. It matters whether Jesus believes he has been given the freedom to save you because you were willing to be crucified with Christ. I have fought against this all of my life to try to understand what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? And how do I put into practice these things that Jesus has asked me to put into practice? There is a false understanding of atonement that is very common today. It believes that what happened at the cross was that Jesus was punished by God. Can God punish God? I don't think so. For that separates the Godhead. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. And if we believe something that separates God from God, what are we doing? You say, but didn't Jesus pray on the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But if we read the rest of that psalm, it's very clear. He knows God had not forsaken him. He was God. He was one with the Father and with the Spirit. He was, as a man, left alone to accomplish the task he as God had decided he would do. 
the fullness of the Godhead rested in Jesus. He was not separated from God. He was God. The problem is that if we believe that Jesus died on Calvary, took all of our punishment, was our substitute, then the daily practice of our lives will be left basically unchanged, still in sin, and completely unprepared to meet a holy God in judgment. There was a theologian, S.H. Kellogg. Let me read for you what he said. He wrote, He wrote, when the blood of the sin offering, this is in the Old Covenant, this is with Israel long ago. He says, when the blood of the sin offering had been sprinkled in the holiest, the sins of Israel were then by the other goat of the sin offering borne away. Israel stood there still a sinful people, but their sin, now expiated by the blood, was before God as if it were not. So does the holy victim in the antitype, who first by his blood expiated sin, then as a living one, bear away all the believer's sins from the presence of the Holy One into a land of forgetfulness, And so it is that, as regards acceptance with God, the believing sinner, though still a sinner, stands as if he were sinless, all through the great sin offering. To see this, to believe in it and rest in it, is life eternal. It is joy and peace and rest. It is the gospel. This is referred to as the gospel of grace as advocated by all of the sinning religionists, the Calvinists and others. But see, God had made provision for all men in his atonement for the removal of sins. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have the redemption by means of his blood, the removal of sins. That word redemption is very interesting. It can mean that we, if I redeem something, it can mean that I paid a price for it. paid a price for it, a ransom price. But the word redemption is made up of two words. The Greek word is made up of two Greek words, first meaning off, and the second meaning release. In other words, to be released from. 
Who did Jesus pay on the cross? Did he pay the devil? Did he pay God? He was God. How can God pay God? If you read in context Ephesians 1.7, it's in whom we have the off-release by means of his blood, the ephemy of sins, the Greek word ephemy, literally away from, the removal away from. Colossians 1.14, in whom we have the redemption, the removal of sins. So this Greek word for redemption is a word of emancipation. It's a word of liberation. It's a word of deliverance, freedom from sin in the here and now by the means of the blood. Hebrews 9.26, but now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What do you think God will require in that day of judgment? Given the provision he has made at such a great cost for the freedom from sin. This whole concept of God did a finished work at Calvary where he loves us unconditionally and he has forgiven all past, present, and future sins has deceived men's minds and worked a kind of mental paralysis in which they cannot accept the superiority, the power of the blood of Christ over that of the Levitical animal. If you look at Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. Therefore, they cannot find the new and living way. Hebrews ten twenty. They cannot discern their true condition or the means of their deliverance from all sin now and thus continue to grope about in the darkness, lost, deprived through their own unbelief of the removal of their sins, being made righteous freely by his grace. In Romans 3.24, they are on their way to judgment in a total state of deception, knowingly in sin, but fancy that they are not under wrath or condemnation. They stake their claim of eternal life on the blasphemous, demonically inspired notion that Jesus was punished in the atonement. William Gurnall, he is one of the old, wonderful Puritan pastors of the past, All he's known for, really, we don't know much about his history. But we have a three-volume set, The Christian in Complete Armor. Let me read what this Puritan wrote. Look closely at the label to see whether the armor you wear is the workmanship of God or not. There are many imitations on the market nowadays. It is Satan's game. If he cannot keep the sinner satisfied in his naked, lustful state, to bring him into some flimsy thing or other that he might not harm Satan or his cause. 
Thus thousands perish who suppose they were armed against Satan, death, and judgment, when all along they are miserable and naked. There are so many who profess Christ, and so few who are in fact Christians. So many who go into the field against Satan, so few who come out conquerors. Now in Matthew, Matthew 7, we've spoken about this very sobering revelation of the judgment scene. A warning to all who claim to be his followers. Not all the ones saying to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of the heavens, but the one who keeps on doing the will of my Father in the heavens. Again, he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name do mighty works? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, the ones working lawlessness. According to Jesus, Many in the religious community will get it wrong. They'll get the wrong answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? As the Philippi jailer said to Paul and Silas in Acts 16.30, what must I do to be saved? Or as the men of Israel hearing Peter preach said to them and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2.37 So you can see what is at issue here. What will God require from you in the final judgment to enter into heaven? Don't answer that question quickly or lightly. For we have all been taught in American apostate theology that all we have to do is pray a little sinner's prayer and say, I accept Jesus as my Savior. Doesn't matter whether you accept Jesus or not, it matters whether Jesus will accept you. The apostles, Paul and Silas, Peter and other apostles answered, Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The word, of course, believed in the Greek means to adhere to, to be stuck with to be totally given to. It's not some intellectual belief. And the command to repent is to turn aside totally and completely from my wickedness. But if you believe that your wickedness is okay, if you believe that God loves you unconditionally, and you can lie, you can cheat, you can steal, you can gossip, you can be a glutton, You can do whatever you want to do because Jesus loves you. Now, those who believe that there was a finished work at the cross, and there was a finished work at the cross, we have to be clear what that work was. It was the work of provision, not application. But those who believe that 
it was all done at the cross, the provision and the application, and all of my past, present, and future sins have been forgiven, they would say, what must I do to be saved? Do to be saved? What are you talking about? Self-salvation? Salvation is all of God and none of man. Man is wholly passive. He does nothing at all to be saved. The Westminster Confession, and I had a long discussion with a man some years ago. His first question to me was, do you adhere to the Westminster Confession? I said, no, I do not. He said, then you're not a Christian. I said, yes, I am. And then we went from there and had quite an enlightening discussion. Let me read for you just a portion of the Westminster Confession. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Of course, the Westminster Confession doesn't include in its confession Genesis 3.15 that says, the Lord will put enmity between us and Satan, between the church and Satan, between Adam's descendants and Satan. Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer says, through the, priest, through the present priestly advocacy of Christ in heaven, there is absolute safety and security for the father's child even while he is sinning. Nothing at all to be saved initially. Nothing at all to remain saved. Nothing at all for final salvation. It's time for each of us to begin to understand the reality of our fallen condition and know that there's only one business in this world that has any import, and that is to recover from this fallen state and regain the lost image of God, which is true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, a provision made for all men in the anointing death of God's Son. It will be the requirement of the final judgment. Now, this doctrine of Christ being punished on the cross, that he took our punishment on the cross. St. Anselm, he lived from 1033 to 1109. He was a Roman Catholic scholar. He introduced the concept of substitutional or vicarious atonement, that Christ took on himself the punishment due to sin, and by his sacrifice offered adequate satisfaction to the offended infinite majesty of God. Now, if you want to know how hard this has all been for me, 
If you look at the statement of belief for the National Prayer Chapel, and I just recently read it again, and I was horrified by what I read. It says, we believe in the vicarious atonement of Jesus. No, I do not believe in the vicarious atonement of Jesus. That will be changed rapidly to reflect the true understanding of the gospel. When that doctrinal statement was written many years ago, I was unclear on these issues. Now, this view that God punished God for our sin, this view was in substance followed by the theologians of the Middle Ages and prevails in Catholic theology today, and early Protestant leaders accepted this view of the redemptive character of Christ's death. Anselm's writing were on various topics, prayers to various saints, etc., but his most notable work was on the atonement, Why the God-Man, completed in 1098. It is said of this work, it interpreted the doctrine in terms of the satisfaction due to the outraged majesty of God. Be it noted that through Anselm, the Roman Catholic Church gave the doctrine of penal atonement to the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, more blasphemer than theologian at this point, we quote briefly. Let me read it for you. He wrote, And indeed all the prophets saw this in the Spirit, that Christ would be of all men the greatest robber, murder, adulterer, thief, sacrilegious person, blasphemer, than whom none greater was ever in the world because he who is a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world now is not an innocent person and without sin. It is not the Son of God born of the Virgin, but a sinner who has and bears the sin. I'm stunned by this. But this is what I too was taught. And it's a lie. If Jesus Christ became sin on the cross, then who will make an atonement for his sin? If he is the worst adulterer, the worst thief, the most sacrilegious person, the robber, the murderer, if he is all of this wickedness on the cross, who will pay for his sin? And Luther is saying, he is not the son of a of God born of a virgin now. He has been changed from an innocent man into a guilty man. He is a man of sin and darkness. How is it possible that God can be separated from God? If God now, if Jesus on the cross is a murderer and an adulterer and a thief and a sacrilegious person, then God is a thief and God is an an adulterer, and God is a sacrilegious person because Jesus Christ is God. He is the fullness of God. What utter foolish stupidity to believe that God can separate God from God. We don't have one God, then we have two gods. One God is a demon. 
And in that case, his death on the cross would have meant nothing. John Calvin, from the 16th century, having commented on Isaiah 53, 5, verse 10, says, The apostle declares this most plainly when he says that he made him to be sin for us who know no sin. In our last broadcast, I showed you that that is a total misrepresentation of the scriptures and a totally incorrect translation. He bore our sin. He did not become our sin. He could not become sin for us. Again, John Calvin says, If Christ had merely died a corporal death, no end would have been accomplished by it. It was requisite also that he should feel the severity of the divine vengeance in order to appease the wrath of God and satisfy his justice, the meaning of which is that he was made a substitute or surety for transgressors and even treated as a criminal himself to sustain all the punishments which would have been inflicted on them. John Calvin credited the all-sufficiency of Christ's merit to the divine decree, not the person, Jesus Christ. The removing sufficiency from the person who wrought the atonement. Accordingly, in the Calvinistic system of atonement, it is outside of Jesus Christ. It is the punishment John Calvin's atonement theory is pagan, not Christian. It removes the atonement from divinity. Atonement then in this system is in the divine decree and the punishment, the satisfaction, not the blood, and so removed from the person of Jesus Christ. You know, as I share this with you. My heart hurts. This is what I've struggled with. And please, you may not understand what I'm struggling with. Let me put it very simply. I believe Let me try to say it succinctly. I believe that Jesus, as the priest, the son, offered himself as the offering. He did it as himself. He was both the God-man, who was also the priest and the sacrifice, He offered himself. The Son of God entered into time and space to do what only he could do, for there was no other to make atonement. There was nothing else that could atone for man. Christ offered himself. He is the atonement. It was not the beating that he received. 
It was not the punishment that he received. It was him. It was he himself. He was the atonement. Can you think of any place in the scripture where the type in the Old Testament, the lamb or the bull, can you remember anywhere in scripture it teaches that the bull had to be whipped to a bloody mess before he could be offered? or that the lamb had to be tortured before it could be offered as the atoning sacrifice. No. And the antitype is the same. The devil was determined he would turn Jesus aside from making that priestly sacrifice of himself. He is both the priest and the sacrifice. Now, you may not have understood much of what I talked about today. Let me put it in very simple words. There had to be a blood atonement who would bridge the difference between God and man And God decided that he himself would be the atonement. That God himself would make peace. Now Charles Finney calls this a governmental atonement. In God's justice, sinners are condemned to die. And he said, I'm going to make a way for sinners to be redeemed. I will die in their place. But God could not die as God. He had to die as a God-man. And he offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement. He offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement so that your past sins could all be forgiven He offered himself as a sacrifice of atonement, a priestly sacrifice of atonement, so that you would be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, that you would no longer be after the likeness of Adam. You would be after the likeness of the second Adam, Jesus that you could be transformed into the very likeness of Jesus Christ, where sin would be utterly put away, not covered over. If you say that... If you say that the blood of Jesus simply covers your sins... then you are making the blood of Jesus the same as the blood of the animals of Leviticus. The blood of the animals could not remove the sin. It only caused a person to be declared righteous, looking forward to the day when Jesus would offer himself as a priestly sacrifice.
Hebrews, the ninth chapter. But now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. To do away with sin. Your mind, if you have been like me, has been paralyzed by false teachings about Jesus, creating a comfort zone where I could continue living my life as a normal American citizen and at the same time enjoy all the benefits of the culture of the gospel of Jesus. But the word says Christ was sacrificed once to take away or to in the Greek, to bear away the sins of many people. And it says he will appear a second time, not to bear or to separate us from our sins, but to bring salvation, the final glory. In the 10th chapter of Hebrews, it says in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, and is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Verse 10, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We're going to continue talking about this. We've got, to, we've got to understand what happened at the atonement. Everything is in the atonement of Jesus. All of the Christian faith rests in that atonement. And if we believe a false doctrine of atonement that allows us to continue to walk in our sins, we are walking on the broad way. We are called to crucifixion to suffering, to a narrow gate, to a groaning gate as we leave our sin. The suffering we, the suffering we go through is the suffering that Satan brings upon us as we reject his offer of worldliness, of fleshly pleasure, as we turn aside from the devil. And I just stop now at the end of this broadcast to ask you the simple question. Do you have victory over your sin? Or have you believed the lie that you're okay and you've always lived in sin and you're always going to be a sinner until Jesus comes and then when you die, your sin will be removed? That's a lie from the pit of hell. You have to be made righteous now. You have to be crucified with Christ. The blood of Jesus has the power to break the bondage of every sin and set you free. We can't live our life now, casually, before God. This issue I've spoken about today should begin to consume your time and your thought, lest you be under the judgment of God. Many will not enter into the kingdom of heaven who have been wonderful religionists. Are you one of those I invite you to come to the prayer chapel. 
I invite you to come and begin to understand the depth of what I've spoken of today. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Almighty God, I lift up your name over every person who has listened to this broadcast. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will give them understanding in their hearts because I know that understanding is not going to come easy. I know that understanding is not going to be casual. Lord, would you come in power today? I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. It's the cry of my heart that you make progress toward the kingdom of God. And like Bunyan's character, Christian, begin to read the word and understand how you stand before a mighty and holy God and what it will take for you to enter salvation. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great Cry.